And let's pray. Father, open my mouth that I might speak in a way that makes it easy for people to hear what you have to say to them. And may we all take this to heart and live it out in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is a sermon about believing. Uh, Thomas, we read, was also known as Didymus, the Greek version of his name. Both these names mean the twin. But uh, because of this incident that we heard about in our Gospel reading, he's also famously known as Doubting Thomas. And that's reflected in the translation of verse 27. Stop doubting, says Jesus, and believe. But this nickname may not quite fit the case. For did Thomas really doubt? That is, did he waver between believing and not believing? Did he question a belief and wonder whether it was really true and think, well, perhaps it isn't? Or did Thomas do something slightly different? Seems to me that Thomas was clear that he did not believe and would not believe unless he says, I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were. And so given this refusal to believe, this strong statement that I will not believe unless, we might prefer to call him stubborn Thomas for a band of friends that he knew well and presumably trusted, told him, as one, we have seen the Lord. Now, the Lord had died not long before. However, this Lord, whom they were talking about, had done incredible things in his lifetime. He had fed thousands with a few loaves and fish. He had given sight to a blind man. He had called a man from the grave alive after four days. Was it really reasonable of Thomas to discount what his friends said, given what they'd all experienced together? Surely there is a streak of stubbornness in Thomas's declaration, I will not believe. Other people might prefer to think of Thomas not so much as stubborn, but as actually sensible, and call him sensible Thomas. Because why should he believe his grief-stricken traumatised friends. I mean, aren't they exactly in the kind of impressionable, emotional state where their imaginations might too easily run away with them? Doesn't such an extraordinary claim as this need extraordinary confirmation? After all, if they say, Jesus was here, we saw his hands and sighed, he spoke to us, We all heard him. Isn't Thomas right to insist on something more objective, more independent, more direct than this report? So isn't he sensible to say, unless I see, unless I touch, I will not believe? Well, whether we prefer to think of Thomas as stubborn Thomas or sensible Thomas, it doesn't really make a difference where Thomas ends up, because Thomas does have his own encounter with Jesus. Verse 26, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, 
Modern translations have Jesus saying to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. But more literally, and with the older translations, it is don't be faithless. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas responds to Jesus' invitation with enthusiasm. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. You can just imagine him falling to his knees. So Thomas is not just saying, okay, okay, I accept that you have somehow appeared. Don't know how you've done it, but there it is. He doesn't just say, okay, I believe you have been raised from the dead. No, he says, you, the risen one, are my Lord. I will follow you. You, the risen one, are my God. I will worship you. Thomas is, in the end, you see, believing Thomas. Worshipping Thomas. Jesus has a word for Thomas and also for all who will come later in verse 29. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. For Thomas and his friends, his fellow disciples, had a very particular experience of coming to faith in Jesus Christ as God's Christ as his Messiah. They met him in his mortal flesh. They heard him speak, they saw him act, they followed him on the strength of these encounters. In the end, they met him in his risen and ascending body too. They heard him speak, they saw him act, they beheld his hands and side. But Jesus knows that things are changing, that he is returning to his Father. And the experience of coming to faith in Jesus as God's Messiah will therefore also be different for those who come after them. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There will be those who, even though they never saw Jesus, never witnessed a miracle, never touched his hands and side, still come to say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. How is this possible? Well, there are three entwined factors that we might pick out of this passage. Firstly, the mission of the first disciples. By verse 21, Jesus says to these gathered, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus' disciples, you see, did not return quietly to their old lives, keeping their experiences of Jesus to themselves or maybe telling stories around the dinner table to the grandchildren or those who came to find out. No, they didn't do that. They gave themselves to this cause, the cause of telling others, we have seen the Lord. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. By believing, you may have life in his name. The disciples did not retire quietly. They stepped out on mission. Secondly, the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 22, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So the disciples were given not just a commission to go, but strength and wisdom for their mission given to them by God's Holy Spirit. And this same Spirit evokes faith and enables people to see the kingdom of God, even though it is invisible, to understand that Jesus is alive, even though we cannot touch his hands 
and sighed. It is, as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 5, no one can enter the kingdom of, of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. It is by his Spirit, living and active, that God the Father draws people to believe in his Son, to say of Jesus, my Lord and my God. There are two factors, the mission of the disciples and the power of the Holy Spirit. Here is a third, the Gospels. For one of the products of the mission of the disciples is the kind of book that is called a Gospel, four of which are in our New Testament. John, the one we are reading, is a Gospel peculiarly, almost obsessively focused on evoking the reader's faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. The miracles it recalls, it calls signs, that is, pointers to the identity of the one who did them. And so we read, these signs are written in this book that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These books have been around for a long time. The fact is that many people over the centuries and continue to do so today, many people find these Gospels powerful reading, enough to make them feel that in them they really have encountered Jesus and that God has spoken to them, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. So there are three factors, the mission of the first disciples, power of the Holy Spirit, the Gospels themselves. We live in what is called a secular age, a sceptical age, a disenchanted age that doesn't swallow tales of supernatural happenings. Because, so the story goes, it has found a more reliable path to knowledge. That is, the application of the human intellect to the ordinary workings of the world. We're rational now, we're empirical, we're scientific. And so, the Gospels, what are they? Well, a set of legendary embellishments upon the life of a Jewish rabbi with radical ideas, but not the eyewitness account of the Messiah, the Son of God. What about the Holy Spirit? Well, says the secular age, like all things divine, the Holy Spirit is both implausible and undesirable. The arguments for God are frankly dud, and God himself is a dud anyway. We're better off without his moralising. We prefer the human spirit to the Holy Spirit. What about the third fact, the disciples and the church that they founded? All that missionary activity, well, says the secular age, what a disaster that was. They brought on the dark ages after all, didn't they, those Christians? So there are no doubt, there is no doubt, that there are obstacles for people in this secular age, this environment. There are obstacles for people to get past before they can believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, before they can imagine that there really is life in his name. And the mood, the atmosphere, the framework and perspectives of the secular age might generate certain kinds of doubts in you in those you know. 
Now, doubts can be addressed, let me say this. Serious scholars continue to make the case that the Gospels do contain and are based on eyewitness testimony of those who saw and knew Jesus. Richard Borkham uh, is uh, the author of a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, recent book arguing ex- exactly that. If you uh, have doubts about whether the Gospels are credible, there are people writing books to explain how they are. Serious scholars continue to believe in God and to find arguments for God's existence compelling. And, and even in our own day, uh, people who have been atheists for decades change their minds. A, a philosopher called Anthony Flew uh, lived most of his life as an ardent defender of atheism in, I think, his 80s, his last uh, Last year, he changed his mind and wrote a book called There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. It happens still in our own day. Serious scholars continue to argue that the success of the Christian mission has done great good to the world, that actually Christians and the gospel have brought about excellent things. And you might read a book uh, again, recent popular history by a guy called Tom Holland called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, which argues precisely this. If you want something more trenchant, turn to David Bentley Hart and his book Atheist Delusions. My point is, doubts can be addressed. There are books out there addressing these criticisms and questions of our secular age, and not all is of the opinion that... Everything Christians say is passe and discredited. No. However, addressing doubts like that, that's one thing. But believing in Jesus and finding life in his name is actually a different thing. And that still comes only through the Holy Spirit using what is written about Jesus in the Gospels and proclaimed by his people, the church, to draw us and others to Jesus and so to find life in his name. We cannot lose confidence in these processes, in these factors. Let me finish with this observation. Jesus is very gracious to Thomas, to the man who gave the ultimatum, I will not believe unless... Jesus offered his hands and his side. Jesus didn't need to accommodate Thomas's refusal to accept what his fellow disciples said, but he did. He did accommodate it without a word of reproach. There is reason to believe in Jesus. But if you are a bit like Thomas, reluctant to accept others' words for things, wanting your own conditions satisfied, then know that Jesus may accommodate you in ways you don't expect. He may turn up and convince you, even if he has no obligation to do so, that he is indeed alive. And secondly, know that Jesus is more interested in evoking faith than in rebuking unwillingness to believe. His appeal to Thomas is simple, And it may be his appeal to us as well. Reach out your hand. 
Stop doubting and believe. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice with the disciples at these accounts of your reunion with them after your resurrection. We thank you for the mission that you sent them on and the spirit that you gave them and the gospel that they left for us to read today. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bring us to say with Thomas of Jesus, my Lord and my God where we have doubts or where we have an unwillingness to believe, where there are obstacles to our belief, we pray, Lord, that Jesus would graciously come to us and take them away, that we might gladly and openly trust in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.